This is the Tech Nibble Computer Business Podcast with Bryce Witte, dedicated to helping you succeed in the computer business. Hello and welcome to the Tech Nibble Podcast. On this show, I'm speaking to Dean Ingraham, who owns a successful business called The Computer Exchange with two physical storefronts. In this episode, we talk about when it's time to set up a storefront, when it's time to take on employees, and how to train them so they consistently do quality work every time. We also talk about what marketing works best for him, and we go fairly deeply into the business of mobile phone repairs. Please welcome Dean Ingraham. Hello, Dean. Welcome to the show. Hi, Bryce. Thank you for having me. So um, would you be able to take us sort of back in time, sort of what led you up to the point of running the, the shop? Yeah, sure. So I started the business about five and a half years ago, actually closer to six. Um, I was a college student and I was working part-time and going through school full-time and taking care of two babies and just kind of, you know, started dabbling with, uh, you know, tech work, started purchasing some broken computers here and there and fixing them up and then basically reselling them. What I ended up doing was I was selling these and then I was also purchasing from my customers who was buying these, you know, broken or refurbished laptops, their broken laptops as partial exchange, which is actually one of the reasons why we named the business the PC Exchange. We eventually got so busy that we ended up having to get an office, then two offices and a full suite. And then basically we got the suite that we're at now. Uh, is that the um, Jacksonville location or the Camp Lejeune? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Yeah, that. it's uh, Camp Lejeune. Lejeune. Yep, but uh, that's, that's the Jacksonville location that we're at now. And we got about 1,400 square feet, you know, small little store in the front and, you know, a good old size, you know, work area in the back. You mentioned you're getting, you got very busy and then jumped to the store. Was there a particular point where you knew you just couldn't handle it anymore at the current location? Well, sorry, at the previous location. Well, I mean, we started out of the house for the first six months. So, you know, as you can imagine, especially with two babies, I was constantly cleaning the house. And, uh, you know, so that, you know, it was presentable for people to come in and look at the laptops I had for sale. And uh, it, it just kind of got ridiculous after a while. And so after six months, I started looking for an office. Uh, then we had to get two offices. And then we were finally able to get a suite within that same building, but it was only about 700 square feet. We were starting to do so much work out of that same suite that we were literally building shelves in the walls to actually do repairs on the shelves. So you, we were running virus removals, you know, you know, tune-ups, uh, reinstalls on the shelves, on the walls, just because we didn't have room to do it anywhere else. And that was about, by the end of that, that was about a year and a half. So, I mean, once you start doing repairs on the walls and not on a bench, uh, you don't have room anymore. So we found another location, which is a suite that we're at now, and uh, it's about 1,400 square feet. And within a few years, you know, we were busting out the seams, you know, and barely able to, you know, maintain the level of work that we were getting here. However, uh, a lot of that has actually changed as of recently. As you know, we're starting to do more cell phone and tablet repairs, which obviously requires a lot less space. So actually, we got a lot more breathing room than we did just a year ago. What made you choose that location? Like, what what were the factors involved to say, hey, this is the right place for us? Like, other than just enough space, was there anything else you took into consideration? Uh, the the major thing was location. There is one main strip in, in the city that we're in that you know gets the most traffic. There's a couple other you know like highways, major highways that run through there that get a lot of traffic as well. But you know one's pretty pretty run down and ghetto. The other one is just kind of ghetto as well, but it's it's one of those things where you just kind of pass by every location, you know, that's on that highway. And unless you're specifically looking for it, you're not going to see it. 
so Western Boulevard, which is the strip that we're on now, you know, just made the most sense. And it's also right across the street from the college. And the price, honestly, was just right. When we first moved to this location, it was more than what I could afford. In fact, it was twice as much as what I was paying. But I knew that if I was going to grow, that I had to have the room to grow. So, you know, between the location and the space, and honestly, uh, the fact that the that the building that runs actually nice and it's, you know, kept up and everything, you know, that's basically what led us to, you know, making this decision. With the risk that you took with the rent and being at quite a lot more than what you were sort of earning, um, how did you know whether that risk was going to pay off? So did you know that you were going to make enough money to cover all that uh, fairly quickly or did you calculate it all before or what happened? There? Yeah, so I had a, I basically had to determine, you know, what is it that I had to sell or upsell? in order to make up the difference, you know, so, you know, I was, I was just basically thinking of everything, you know, possible. So I was thinking, okay, so I would have to sell this many computers in order to make up the difference in rent, or I had to upsell so many tune-ups in order to make up the difference in rent. And so I would basically set myself, you know, goals or benchmarks that I would have to hit every single month so that my rent was paid. So basically sales goals is what I was, you know, you know, making for myself. What sort of things were you upselling? Um, tune-ups uh, was a big thing. Uh, still a big thing, obviously. Any of our software, the you know the refurbished laptops, you know that did you know that does well for us, and then of course accessories that went with that. But I think the big things I was looking at back then uh, was the refurbished laptops, any of our software, and tune-ups. So those are the big upsells, you know, that I was counting on to make up the difference. Do you have any employees there? Like I assume with I've, I've taken a look at your, your shop online and it um, looks to be pretty big. Do you have any? Yeah, employees? we got about seven. How did you know like to hire them? Like at what point did you determine that well you needed external help? Uh, there was a long time there where I was working probably over a hundred plus hours a week, and I know I'd calculated it out and I was making less than four dollars an hour. So and once you start doing that, you really need some additional help. The problem was at the time I didn't think I could afford the additional help, but you know. Uh, it's just like, you know, moving up from the small location to the bigger location. I may not have been able to afford it, but it's one of those things that you have to do if you want to grow. So once I was putting in that many hours, there was, I just didn't have a choice, to be honest with you. With hiring the employees, how did you know um, who was the right people? When I first started, my main concern was personality and character uh, more than technical skills. As far as, you know, I, I have really good I'm able to simplify repair processes pretty easily to where almost anybody can do them. So uh, training was not a main concern for me. Uh, I wanted people that could, you know, basically talk to customers who could speak on their level and more importantly, be able to sell and upsell. So, you know, during the interview process, obviously, they had to have an interest in learning how to do the repairs. Uh, but more importantly, they had to be able to speak, be able to articulate themselves well, demonstrate ability to, you know, uh, sell themselves. Otherwise, I know they couldn't sell the products. Yeah, it's it seems to be um, with personality obviously you can't train but just about everything else you can the skills you tell them to follow your systems that sort of thing right absolutely in fact for a quite a long time up felt in fact up until about a year even our receptionists were required to become technicians uh and when you can take a receptionist whose main you know job is to check in check out customers and answer phones and make them you know into a technician then you know you've simplified the process enough uh, to where almost anybody could do it so, I mean, and that's that's always been my goal. We have what we call checklist repairs. So, like I said, in the very beginning, you know, it wasn't too important that they were technicians so much as they were salesmen. But now, you know, as we have grown, you know, it's become more important to not have to spend all my time training 
and to actually get you know more experienced technicians in the shop, but while also trying to maintain you know employees that also have good personality. So as you can imagine, that became much harder to find. You mentioned um, some repair processes. So how did you go about sort of defining them and sort of simplifying them? Um, so we have what we call checklist repairs. So a checklist repair for us would be things like virus removals, tune-ups, uh, reinstalls. You know, those are things that I can consider anybody can do. And we have checklists upon checklists. But for each each of those repairs, we have a checklist on how to start the repair and how to finish the repair. And, you know, part of finishing the repair, of course, is to check everything, to make sure all the functions work properly, make sure we didn't forget anything, check the browsers, uh, just basically make sure that the end product is what is intended. The great thing about having this these checklists, you know, is that the quality is always consistent no matter who does it. Um, and, you know, we end up having anywhere between two to three different technicians working in one section, like the software section, and any one of them can pick up where the other person left off because it's all in the checklist and it gets checked off as it's done. So, you know, it's the checklist consists of things, uh, a s- series of scans, check this, browser cleanups, you know, account creation process, and then just checking all the functions and features and make sure that they work properly. So systems and processes are pretty big at uh, your store. Yeah, I mean, there's no way that we could run with the volume that we have and at the quality um, that we produce without, you know, uh, systems and processes in place. Are those systems, are they um, fairly simple? Like, is it sort of like, okay, run virus removal software or does it sort of go a lot more deep into that? So check for this, check for that. Yeah, I can actually kind of go down the list, you know, of like a virus removal or tune-up to kind of give you an idea if that helps. I mentioned before you also have the other location. Um, at what point sort of did you decide to grow into the second location? Um, so we decided to go into the second location. Uh, it wasn't really as much as uh, planning, as much as a kind of an opportunity that kind of fell into our lap. We have a really good reputation where we're at currently. And there is a military base that's actually about 15 minutes away from our location here in Jacksonville. And a lot of the people who actually run many of the functions on that base were our customers. Now, they had another shop on the base, but they were not happy with the shop that was on the base. They'd been there for like 15 years. They'd done shoddy work. They were very unprofessional. They Their business didn't grow. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't making them money and it wasn't making their customers happy. So about six months uh, before the contract was actually up, they approached me and they asked if I'd be interested. Um, now, at the time, uh, honestly, I was not sure if I wanted to open up another shop simply because I wasn't sure where the industry was going. Uh, but I figured, well, you know, even doubles my income. Why not? Uh, and the great thing about the contract was that it was all percentage based. So they covered the rent. Uh, they covered the utilities. And, you know, it was based on the percentage of what my sales were. So even if I didn't have a great month, I didn't have to pay a whole lot in overhead. We went ahead and put in a bed. They had some ridiculous things like, you know, you had to work in like a 700 square foot area and they wanted, they wanted you to be like 10% uh, below the local average for this area, blah, blah, blah. You know, that if you wanted to have a successful business, it was just not going to work. So they sent us their contract. We basically sent them back our account, you know, Connor contract and basically said, you know what, take it or leave it. If you want to have a good shop with a good reputation, this is what it's going to require. And uh, we pretty much got everything we wanted. And, uh, you know, we didn't get the bigger location right away, but we actually just moved into our bigger location on Camp Lejeune about a month ago. So, and everything's been going well. We're doing probably 
almost half of what we do here in the Jacksonville store, and that's only after a year and a half of being open. How do you balance sort of not being at that location? Like I understand uh, you're at the Jacksonville location now. How do you sort of uh, oversee everything at the other location? So this is where the policies and procedures and processes all come in play. To be honest with you, I got really lucky uh, in many respects. We had had a hard time trying to find some good uh, you know, technicians. One night we did our last two interviews and we stumbled upon two great technicians and literally me and the manager just kind of looked at each other and we were like, did we seriously just interview those two on the same day? And uh, so we hired them on and one of those technicians ended up going over to the Camp Lejeune store. Now, the technician, to be completely honest with you, didn't have a whole lot of experience, uh, but he had management experience and you know his past record showed that he was capable of running a store. So I put him over at Camp Lejeune. Or Camp Lejeune, and basically I taught him, you know, all the technical things that he would have to learn uh, or that he would have to do over the, you know, basically a two-week period. Gave him, went over the policies and procedures with him, and gave him the manual and said, "Here you go. Call me if you got any questions." And uh, it's it's not exactly the way I would suggest that people do it, but unfortunately, because of how much time that was required to put into Jacksonville, that's basically all I could do at the moment. Uh, and at the time, you know, the store was relatively slow, so you know it's. I could pop in from you know time to time and help out, answer any questions I had, and I knew he wouldn't be overloaded. But if it wasn't for having those policies and procedures in place, there was no way that I could have opened up a second store and then have it run successfully. And it did run successfully with that one technician for that first year, uh, and he did a great job. And now he's actually my current manager now. What sort of software are you guys using there? Like, do you have any sort of favorite tools, or both as software and hardware? So, for the for like the checklist repairs that I was talking about earlier, we use things like you know TDSS Killer, uh, MBAR, MBAM, Combo Fix, Hitman Pro, and these are like right down the list of things that we do during our virus removal process. You know, then we clean the registry, and then we use AdWord Cleaner and G, uh, JRT and Kaspersky. Uh, and those are the main scanners that we use. And then from there, we go through the actual repair process of running checklists and you know, SFC scan now, as well as creating the uh, the actual account or new account for uh, the repair process. So those are the most most of the tools that we use for like virus removals. And uh, that also uh, is a lot of the tools that we use for tune-ups. Uh, as far as diagnostic goes, we use you know things like MemTest86 and MemTest86+. Plus. Um, we do use PC check uh, from time to time whenever we come come across a gaming uh, computer, uh, a custom build, um, or if we come across uh, anything with overheating or possible display or motherboard issues. Uh, you know, assuming that it turns on and displays, we'll use PC check for those purposes. Uh, and then for hard drive tests, we'll use uh, G Smart Control for the bulk majority of our hard drives, and then HDD scan. Uh, you know, for solid state drives and old IDE hard drives. Uh, and for the most part, that that pretty much is all the software that we use here in the shop. Uh, as far as the hardware goes, we actually have custom built diagnostic boxes that allows us to test uh, up to eight hard drives at once. Uh, allows us to do, you know, uh, things like data backup, cloning, data transfers and stuff like that. Like what CRM are you using, uh, if you're using one at all? Right now we're using Repair Shopper. We were using uh, M Help Desk probably for the first few years of the business. Uh, and Repair Shopper, I'm sorry, uh, M Help Desk is great in many respects, but I believe something got corrupted in, in our account and we kept on having crashing crashes going on. And so we moved to Repair Shopper. Repair Shopper has been good. 
I would say its biggest downfall is its reports. Um, I, I feel like I'm constantly having to manually sift through data in order to get the information about the business that I need. In fact, just to kind of give you an example, you know, we were we were actually looking at a much bigger space for the Jacksonville store just recently, and the rent was about three times more than what we're paying now. As I said before, I don't I don't work a whole lot, you know, on the computers or tablets or cell phones. Uh, I do I try to run the business more than anything else. So I'm not in the midst of all the repairs, and so I've seen a lot of repairs uh, in the computer sections get done very quickly. Uh, and I and I know our processes obviously have helped that. We also use D7. That's another thing I forgot to mention. Uh, and D7 has you know, it, you know streamlined our process a lot. And uh, so I kind of figured that you know we're just knocking out repairs a lot faster. And D7 is helping us and all this. And you know, but that we're still going to need the additional space to expand our store as well as the work area. And so we we started to um, you know look for a bigger location. We found one that we thought was going to work. And it was, you know, it was a lot more than what we wanted to spend, but we figured that the the walk by traffic was going to help generate, you know, enough business to make up the difference, uh, as well as basically applying the same strategy as the first time we made the move and uh, setting benchmarks for upsells that we wanted to, you know, make, you know, throughout the month to make up the difference. But when I was doing all the calculations, the math, and you know, looking at our projections for that year uh, and determining whether or not it was something that we could do, I was only looking at half the picture. And that was because the reports that is available to me was not very clear. So I couldn't easily see, for instance, you know, how many of, you know, what type of repairs are we doing versus another type of repair. And, you know, so what I was end up doing is I was mainly sifting through a lot of the data. And it took me probably a couple hours to finally realize, wow, we're actually doing a lot more cell phone and tablet repairs than we are computer repairs. Just for instance, you know, as of last year, June, we were doing 25% uh, cell phone and tablet repairs, and now uh, as of last month, uh, we're doing now sixty nine percent cell phone and tablet repairs. So our needs have actually changed dramatically. A year ago, we needed a bigger location. Now we could probably get away with a slightly smaller location than we currently have now. But you know, if I had the reports to be able to give me a quick snapshot of that, I would have known that long before we started negotiating the lease. So, like I said, repair shopper, I think. You know, I think his biggest downfall is not having, um, you know, robust report systems. But other than that, everything else in Repair Shopper seems to be working out great. In fact, it uh, seems to be working out a lot better than M Help Desk was for us in the past. The good thing about the Repair Shopper guys as well is they're very good at listening to their customers as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if they do implement better report systems sometime soon. Yeah, they definitely are. In fact, um, one of them reached out to me a while back when I was complaining about the reports and they wanted to set up a time to talk to me uh, about, you know, making them more robust. And to be completely honest with you, uh, I just been so busy that I wasn't able to sit down, you know, for a half hour or so to just talk to him and, and you know, give him an idea of what I needed and wanted. Uh, so, you know, obviously I could have definitely helped uh, in contributing to that, but it's just, it's difficult to find the time. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, you mentioned um, a lot of people, a lot of your customers are walk-by customers. Do you do any other marketing beyond just people seeing your sign and walking in? Well, actually, um, most of our customers are coming from Google AdWords and referrals now. Uh, in fact, Google AdWords almost makes up around half of what we bring in. Uh, what I was hoping to accomplish with the Nuke location was actually the walk, you know, the walk-by traffic. Uh, so we don't get a whole lot of that here. In fact, um, most of the time, most people who actually walk in and it's because they saw us by happen chance, 
they're actually asking us for directions to another place. So we don't get a whole lot of that here. But uh, Google, like I said, Google AdWords and referrals is, is our biggest advertising venues. But we also advertise in the local movie theaters. We have some commercials there. We did some advertising in the past, you know, with the radio. We didn't see a whole lot come back from that. But that makes up the bulk majority of the advertising that we currently do now. Is someone else managing the AdWords campaign or is it just you guys just running your own stuff? So right now I'm, I'm actually using AdWords Express which works fine. You know, obviously I know there's a lot of advantages to actually using AdWords, but honestly I have not had the time to learn AdWords. So starting probably next month, I have someone that's going to start managing actual AdWords for us. Uh, he's a local guy here that does a really good job at, you know, web design uh, and building and stuff like that. And he's really good at SEO. Uh, so, you know, I, I think you should do, much better at the AdWords than I'm doing at the AdWords Express. But even with AdWords Express, we're still doing very well. We're only spending maybe about $750 a month and about half of our business uh, is coming from those AdWords. And we're doing a little over $30,000 a month in growth. So, I mean, uh, I think that's a pretty good return for not knowing a whole lot about AdWords yeah, in general. That's an excellent return. Did, did you find that the movie ads helped much? Uh, so we get some customers from uh, the movie theater ads, but I think the biggest thing that it helps is it helps target the customers that we want uh, because like one of the movie theaters, for instance, is more family oriented. So we get a lot of the higher income uh, families that come in through there uh, and it gets everybody else at the mo- other movie theater. But our ad is very professional. Uh, it kind of actually has a whole Apple feel to it and it's, it gives our business the image of uh, being extremely professional elegant, uh, sleek, you know, up to date. So, you know, even though it doesn't bring in a whole lot of direct business, it helps build our brand. So uh, if you're looking for direct results, I'm not sure that that's the way to go. But if you're trying to build a name, build a reputation and build an image for your business, you know, things that like that, that are visual, I think definitely help. How did the radio work out for you guys? You know, radio is very much the same way. It's more marketing than it is advertising. You know, yeah, you get your name out there and, you know, somebody may, in fact, walk in uh, as a result of hearing you on the radio. But it was just it was more of a a brand building marketing, you know, than anything else. I could say that I could probably count on one hand in a six month shot how many people actually came in. And ultimately, you know, I didn't think it was beneficial enough to continue the campaign. I'm not sure if we'll do it uh, do it in the future or not. If we do, it'll be for a very specific purpose, but just for general advertising that we do repairs, it didn't seem to do very well for us. Have you done any sort of other uh, offline advertising? So sort of like uh, yellow pages, newsletters, dropping uh, ads in mailboxes, that sort of thing? So the first year we did yellow pages and it was terrible. In fact, I think in the last... In the last five or six years, uh, I can count maybe two or three people who's ever called in from the Yelp pages. You know, and, and obviously people keep their phone books around for a few years, so uh, that's not too terribly surprising that we had a couple more after that first year. But I mean, the, the thing about Jacksonville is that the average age is tw- you know the age twenty two. There's not very many twenty two year olds using the Yelp book you know anymore or the Yelp pages anymore. They're they're mostly on their smartphone, Googling whatever they want. So you know we learned that very quickly and very early on. And you know, yeah, obviously it's doing very well from us from making a shift from the Yelp pages to Google. It also shows the importance of having a um, responsive website, one that changes size for mobile devices, just because it sounds like that most of your traffic is coming from online and potentially from a phone. 
Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we've had several customers uh, just throughout the years mention how uh, how much you know better and more professional and up to date our website was compared to all the other shops. In fact, from the very beginning, we have tried to set ourselves apart from all the other computer shops you know local here at, by doing things like you know having an up to date website that didn't look like it jumped out of the nineties or having you know a shop that was clean and presentable. Most of the shops you walk into here. Uh, and I know everybody's got to start somewhere, but you know most of the shops you walk into here are just ghetto. They're run down. There was even one shop that the walls are so brown for nicotine; it was just disgusting. You know, there was computers and equipment everywhere. You literally walked in, you tried not to step on someone's computer. So, uh, needless to say, most of those businesses are out of business now in the last few years that we've been open. But you know, things like the website and things like the appearance of our business; those are things that we strive to be different on. You know, you know, strive to. Uh, be more professional, more up to date. Yeah, looking at um, the pictures of your shop on your website, the shop is absolutely beautiful. It's everything's branded, everything's got your colors. Looks fantastic. Yeah, and I think it's been a key factor in keeping our customers and and not making them want to go, you know, somewhere else because they feel comfortable dropping off, you know, their equipment here. In fact, most of the time when someone walks in through our door, they rarely ever leave and go somewhere else. You know, they feel like they can drop off their stuff here and that it's not going to be stolen, that it's not going to be destroyed, and especially if they've walked into other shops locally here. So I think it definitely has helped a lot. It looks a bit more like, it looks more of a shop than a workshop. From the pictures, I can't see um, sort of any computers and cables dangling around. It's I see things that are on the walls that people can buy and... Yep. Much more of a shop than a workshop. Yeah, it definitely is. And uh, that is the image that we uh, that we wanted to go for. And honestly, while we're not, you know, a major retail store by any means, you know, having those items definitely help, you know, increasing our profits. You know, most of the retail that we do sell uh, is after a repair. So, I mean, we sell cell phone cases and, you know, tempered glass screen protectors and, you know, uh, charging, you know, cables and stuff like that after almost every single screen placement that we do. So, you know, not only does it, you know, make a shop look a whole lot better and, you know, but it also increases our profitability, obviously. Yeah, like selling a backup after a customer's data loss, it's one of the easiest sales once um, you've repaired the damage. Exactly. And if you don't have it there, um, it's going to be very difficult to sell. It's interesting that it seems to be uh, very important um, with the way you look. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't think it's not that important to look to have a place that looks really great or even your own presentation. But I think people forget that the way you look is extremely important. Um, They'll judge you in about seven seconds about whether this guy looks like he's on top of his game or, as you mentioned, whether they'll steal the computer or do a bad job or get their um, cigarette nicotine on it or anything. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Appearance is everything because even if you're not successful, you sure as heck should look successful. And the thing is, is you know, success breeds success. You know, one of the reasons why you know uh, clubs have lines out the doors because if there's a line, then obviously people want to go there. You know, if you got a packed out parking lot, then obviously uh, you're doing good business and you're obviously being successful because obviously you got traffic coming in and out of there. You know, if you if you look successful, you're going to become you know, you're more likely to become successful. Uh, you know, it basically boils down to, you know, fake it till you make it. So even when down to the business name, the PC exchange, you know, while I do want to change it now because now we're more of our repairs of cell phone stuff, it was great in the beginning because it sounded like it was bigger than what we were. I was out of my house and I had the name, the PC exchange, and it sounded like it was a big store. So it allowed us to be able to grow into it. Whereas if we had named it Bob's Computer Repair, you go to Bob's Computer Repair and you're going to expect it to look like Bob's Computer Repair. So, I mean, 
name, your logos, your image, your branding, uh, all of that, your first impressions is, is so important to the customer because that's usually what's going to make the customer uh, decide whether or not they're going to do business with you or if they're going to do business with somebody else. I think with the name, um, it also kind of sets the kind of customers you're going to get with the price. I mean, if people are looking for Bob's computer repair, there's a good chance that they're, they're hoping for a single guy working out of his bedroom, get a cheap price, you know, $25 repairs. But if you go to a big store like the PC Exchange, then, and that, you know, that looks the way it looks so professional like this, then you're, you're already expecting to pay, you know, $80, $100 plus. Right. Exactly. And, uh, and from the very beginning, um, this is actually not my first business. And in my first business, I learned very quickly. You know, that you have to price yourself with the customers that you want. Uh, and obviously, you have to provide the quality to back that up. Without having that quality and without having that appearance, uh, it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to charge that amount. But, you know, just as an example, I, I remember having a family come into the shop. Uh, this was a couple of years ago. And uh, I, was, I was working with another customer at the moment, but I could hear them and they walked in and uh, almost immediately, after the husband looked around, he turned around and said to his wife, we need to leave. This place is going to be way too expensive. And so obviously, you know, you know, I don't want to give the impression that we're way too expensive, but it does go to show that appearance will put, you know, set in the customer's mind what they expect to pay and what they expect it's, to get. It's really an automatic filter. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned um, you've switched largely to uh, cell phone and tablet repair. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So, uh, you know, initially, obviously, we started out with computer repair, you know, virus removals, tune-ups, hard drive replacements, uh, power jack places, screen places, you know, everything you can imagine, your traditional computer repair shop. About, uh, probably about two, two and a half years ago, we started to get into iPhone repair. In fact, for a while, that's all we did as far as cell phone repair goes. And at the time, I probably only had two, you know, two technicians and we were doing everything. We were doing software, we were doing hardware, we were doing iPhones, you know, we were the receptionist, we were doing everything. So it was very difficult to expand uh, with the limited uh, technicians that we had. But it, it finally got to the point to where we actually had to have a dedicated technician that all he did was cell phones and tablets and uh, anything remotely close to uh, that type of repair. So for instance, we even send over things like glass replacements for the MacBook uh, screen assemblies over to the uh, mobile device section as well because it's the same skill set that's required to take glass off the of tablets. So, you know, we started out small. We started out with iPhones. Uh, then we worked our way into iPads. To be honest with you, iPads were so frustrating in the beginning that I went through periods of learning how to do it and then quitting for six months. <laughs> then I would learn, you know, go back to learning how to do it again. And I quit for six months. And then finally, when I got a, uh, I decided to hire a dedicated technician to just do cell phones and tablets. I said, you know what, you're going to learn it and we're not going to stop doing it. So, you know, we, we learned it. We developed a process for that. And then, you know, we started going into Android phones and Android tablets. Uh, we started learning, you know, what repairs were worth doing, what weren't. And, you know, eventually we started building a name for doing those type of repairs. Uh, and so, you know, we basically are where we are today where we're doing mostly just those repairs. And I think it's not only because of our reputation, obviously, but I think a lot of it is because, uh, especially with the demographics that we're dealing with, with this age group, most of the people here, they're doing everything on their phones. They're doing everything on their tablets. And obviously, the computer repair industry is changing as well. We're starting to see a lot more tablet, you know, laptop hybrids come in. 
And, you know, even though Microsoft Surface tablets were kind of a flop, I think it is more or less a glimpse into the future as to what we're going to be seeing in the future. So we're not going to keep seeing the traditional laptop as much as we've been seeing in the past. We're going to start seeing more and more of these laptop hybrids, laptop tablet hybrids. So I can only see that portion of our business continuing to grow. And the one thing that I've also learned is that, you know, PC repair, for whatever reason, uh, people don't want to pay that much for PC repair. And you're not spending a lot more time on a PC repair compared to that of like Mac repair or uh, cell phone repair. Uh, and in the end, for as much time as you put into it, oftentimes you'll actually make less on a PC repair than you would on a series of cell phone repairs. The biggest difference, of course, is that, you know, I think PC repair probably has more uh, upsell opportunity and thus, you know, more big, you know, bigger ticket items. But cell phone repair with enough volume is actually more profitable per square foot uh, and per hour than PC repair. So we're really trying to gear up our business to start really getting it in people's minds that, you know, hey, we're a cell phone and tablet repair shop. We also do Macs. We also do PCs. But our main focus is mobile devices. And that's going to require us to change our name, to do a few other changes in order to get that into people's minds. But I really believe that that's where the industry is going. You mentioned Android Android phones. Now, I guess the problem with repairing Android phones is it can be like a $30 phone with a screen the size of a, you know, a matchbox or a $1,000 flagship that's actually quite large. How do you sort of stock the parts with that sort of thing? Because it's just so many different models of Android, whereas with the iPhones, you know, basically you can have it from the four upwards and you're pretty much covered. Right. So um, there are thousands of Android phones, obviously, and it's very difficult. In fact, it's pretty much nearly impossible to keep everything that you would need to start to service every phone. But realistically, there's only going to be maybe half a dozen phones you're going to service on a regular basis anyways. Uh, And sometimes you're not going to even really know which those phones are until you've started repairing a few of them. Uh, so like currently right now, you know, obviously we still, you know, we repair the S4s, the S5s. Uh, we'll start seeing more of the S6s come in. We do a lot of G2s and a lot of the G3s, um, the XT1080s, you know, the HT, uh, HSC1s, you know, M8s and M7s. Those are the more common uh, phones. And, you know, we'll try to make it a point to keep things like screens and charging ports in stock for those phones. But anything outside of those phones, Generally speaking, if you want to get it fixed, if it's even worth fixing, uh, it's one of those things where we'll special order the parts and the customer would either have to wait a few days to get the parts in unless they're willing to pay for overnight shipping. But really, you know, in the last couple of years that we've been doing this, I mean, unless there's a resource that I don't know about, the best way that I've found to figure out which phones are going to be the ones that you want to keep things in stock for is basically just to do the repairs and see what comes in consistently. And the thing about that, too, is that generally speaking, when the phones first come out, you're not going to want to keep the parts in stock anyways because they're usually so expensive and the prices drop so quickly that there's no sense in keeping a phone in stock for a month, you know, a phone screen in stock for a month when it first comes out and then just to have it drop $50 to $100. So by the time it's actually worth keeping those parts in stock, you will generally have an idea uh, as to whether or not you're going to start seeing that phone come in regularly or not. Are you finding the Mac repairs worth it? Like with the screens, are they very fiddly? And oh, uh, yeah, Mac repairs are definitely worth it. Um, in fact, uh, when we when we make this major change, Mac repairs are going to be one of the main things that we're going to focus our business on, as well as the mobile devices. In fact, we'll continue to do PC repairs, but you know we want to do that more or less at a premium price. Uh, but Mac repairs in general, 
super easy. Obviously, the reinstalls are super easy. The hardware places are easy. The screen placements, they're a little bit, you know, they're a little difficult, uh, more difficult anyways than all the rest of the repairs, obviously. But honestly, we have a pretty pretty good process of repairing those devices and those screen assemblies. Uh, and it doesn't take us very long at all to do them. In fact, I, I would probably say they're actually easier to repair than an iPad. So, yeah, definitely worth doing. Do you have trouble getting uh, good parts for, say, the iPads, for example? Like, I, I know a lot of people on the forums are having a bit of trouble. Actually, it might have been you that was posting it. Like, with the, uh, I think it was the touchpads. Um, I can't remember if it was the screens or the buttons, but there's a lot of crap parts coming out of China, and it's a little bit hard to actually get good stuff. Right. So, sometimes it seems like you find a good, uh, you know, parts uh, vendor, and then they do great for, like, six months to a year, and then all of a sudden they start supplying crap parts, and then you're switching to another one, uh, and then they do good for a while, and then you start getting crap parts again. And it seems like that's happening all the time. And we have probably four or five different distributors that we go through. E-Tech seems to be the best one right now for iPhones. Wholesale probably is the best one for small parts. Gadget Fix, we've just recently started using them more, and they probably have some of the better prices on the Android screen replace, you know, screens. Uh, Group Vertical is another one uh, that we started using recently. Their parts are more expensive than our other vendors, but you know, time will tell whether or not the quality you know justifies the price that they're charging. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be difficult, and you know, we've also found that because all these different vendors are getting these parts from China, that sometimes they all suffer the same problems. So, for instance, about uh, in the last you know six weeks or so, we've had issues with some of the iPhone screens. You know, the glass lifting up from the the plastic bezel. And it seemed like no matter where we got it from, which vendor, they all had the same exact problem. My understanding, of course, is that, you know, they finally, you know, tracked down where that problem was coming from and it shouldn't be an issue anymore. But the fact remains, all these vendors are all getting them from China. And it seems the only thing that differentiates the vendors is, you know, one, you know, where they're getting it from. And two, you know, how many times it's being tested before it ships out to them. And three, how many times they test it before they ship it out to you. So, and I think that's one of the reasons why E-Tech's uh, small parts are so expensive because they test it. You know, they test their parts so many times before they ship it out. But I think that's the biggest thing that makes a big, you know, that makes the biggest difference is how many times are they testing it before they ship it out to you to ensure that it, you're actually getting a good part. Would you rather pay the premium for you to make sure you definitely got the good stuff or would you rather sort of eat the cost of the bad stuff or go through the process of returning it? What would you prefer? I try to find a balance, you know, you know, for instance, E-Tech, they had their big parts, you know, which are like super premium parts. They have their standard, I guess, what's considered OEM, uh, original LCD, you know, parts. And then they have their A++ screens. To be honest with you, up until just recently where we started seeing the glue issues uh, on the bezels, the A++ parts have been working great. In fact, we rarely ever see any defects come from that. So, you know, honestly... Uh, if we're doing 100 screen placements in a month and I see one or two of them come back, you know, because I had an LCD issue, you know, the amount of money that I saved from all those A++ screens versus like their, you know, their next step up far exceeds the couple warranty claims that we have to do, especially considering the repair only takes about 15 minutes. And usually as long as the, as long as you honor the warranty, the customer is more than happy, you know, to wait there for 15, 20 minutes for you to switch out the screen for them and hand their phone right back. Does it delay the repair, having the bad stuff, or do you just have another one ready and just chuck that in in, in a moment's notice? Well, we always keep the screen, like for instance, iPhones, we always keep those screens in stock. So honestly, there we have so few defective screens coming from e-tech, for instance, 
that we don't even test the screens anymore. We used to with wholesale gadget parts, for instance, uh, we used to test every single screen before we even put it on a phone because we were getting so many defective screens that it was ridiculous. I mean, we were sending a box to them every few weeks of just defective screens. Uh, but eTech has consistently you know, provided good quality screens, so much so that we literally don't even test a screen before we put it on the phone. And every once in a while, we might, you know, we might come across a screen that we just repaired and something's wonky with it and we'll just have to switch it out. But, you know, it, it costs us 15 minutes to do that versus maybe a half hour to an hour to have to, you know, do all the screens when they come in. Uh, and like I said, we don't get very many uh, people coming back for warranty claims. So, you know, the, the couple of times that we have to do a warranty claim, you know, is nominal compared to the time that we would, you know, time and money that we had to spend otherwise. If someone had to come back for a warranty claim, do you make them wait or you generally sort of just swap the part over on the spot or, you know, within a few hours or maybe the next day? Or do you wait for the part to come back from the supplier? So I mean, it really depends on the situation. Uh, so if it's an iPhone, as often as we can, we will try to prioritize that repair uh, and get them done right away. Uh, however, if we have a ton of phones that came in and you know we've already quoted certain time frames, obviously we've got to try to get those done as quickly as possible or at least on time. And so we try to find a balance when it comes to that. Uh, when it comes to Android phones... If we do have a warranty claim, most of the time it's on the phones that we keep the stock, you know, keep the parts in stock anyways. So at that point, it's just a matter of switching out the screen or the part or whatever it is. But, you know, Android phones generally, you know, take a little bit longer than iPhones. So we would have to quote them a little bit of a longer uh, turnaround time. If it's something where we had to do a special order part, unfortunately, the only choice that we have at that point is to go ahead check in their phone if it's not usable and, you know, order the parts or let them keep the phone until we can get the parts in uh, and then just have them return with the phone so we can switch out the part. But, I mean, you, you basically do what you can for the customer when feasible. Obviously, keeping the parts in stock make it a lot easier to be able to honor your warranties in a timely manner. Uh, and obviously, those phones where you have to, report, you know, special order the parts makes it very difficult to honor those warranties in a timely manner and make the customer happy at the same time. Are you finding that most of the Apple devices are outside the Apple warranty or do you find that they're inside the Apple warranty and they just go to you anyway? Well, from my understanding, the warranty is automatically voided as soon as the, the screen uh, is cracked. So the warranty really doesn't matter at that point. I mean, the only other option at that point is either you can take it to a local shop or you can take it to the Apple store and get it repaired. For us... Um, the nearest Apple store is about two hours away. So, you know, you could either save, you know, maybe save $50 on an iPhone 6 to get the screen replaced, you know, by driving two hours out of the way, or you can get it done here. Most people opt to get it done here, obviously. But most of the iPhones that do come in, they're out of warranty because we get tons of iPhone 5s, 5Ss, and 5Cs in here. Uh, and then, of course, the iPhone 6s, is, it's just a matter of do you want to drive two hours of the way or would you rather get it here you know, locally? Yeah, it's not a good use of time going two hours away. You can only save a tiny little bit of money. What, what sort of training do your guys have for the cell phone repair? Like did you, for, for example, the Apple stuff, did you do the Apple training or did you use something like iFixit? Um, my first mobile device technician, which is you know, still with me now, I basically started him off on, you know, training him on the iPhones and the iPads. And, you know, he had no experience as a technician. You know, I didn't have any experience as far as that area goes, except for self-learning. 
And from there, uh, ever since he got stuck in that area, he's been stuck in that area. So he's just learned every single phone that's come in. And, you know, he uses resources like YouTube. Uh, I fix it. He uses, you know, sometimes different forums online if, they're, if we're dealing with troubleshooting. But no real formal training has been given to our technicians for iPhone repair or for Android phone repair. Um, it's mostly just been hands-on and learn as you go. Now, all of our technicians after, you know, our senior mobile device technician uh, has obviously been trained by him. Uh, and uh, we have a graveyard uh, of just phones and phones and phones. And basically we'll get our technicians on those phones and they'll, they'll tear them apart put them back together and tear them apart and tear them back together over and over and over again until they get comfortable with doing that before we will even put them on a customer's phone. Uh, in fact, the first phone that we usually start them on is an iPhone 4 because if you can do an iPhone 4, you can pretty much do any phone after that. So we'll have them do that over and over again until we're confident that they're not going to lose any screws or put things in the wrong place or um, you know screw up anything. Uh, and then once uh, once they've done that, We'll get them on a couple of phones that maybe they work and they have a bad ESN. We'll have them do those phones a few times. And then once we know that everything works and functions, we'll start putting them on customer phones. And I would say we might have might have a problem with the phone, you know, where like it goes dead or we lose a major function, you know, once or twice a year. So it's our rate of having issues with these phones is very low. Well, how do you handle when a client's phone does die on your operating table? How do you handle that? Even even if it's not necessarily your fault, how do you handle that? Okay, so we have a disclaimer form that uh, that each customer signs, you know, for their repairs, basically stating that hey, you're bringing us a broken device. You know, there's always a possibility of other damage. You know, especially if it's bent. You know, we explain to them the different circumstances that can happen. That while we'll take every precaution possible, there's always a possibility that you know, while everything may work now, something may not work later. And of course, we'll test everything in front of the customer. You know, all the, we have a checklist of things that we check on the phone. Uh, and if we find any issues right away, we'll show them before we even start on the repairs. And even though our disclaimer says that, hey, we're not responsible if there's any damages, honestly, we pretty much will still buy the customer a brand new phone if it really boils down to it. But most of the time, the times that we do end up running with issues is usually when someone brings in a completely dead or completely you know, trash phone that you can't even test anything in the first place. Uh, and then we get a new screen on there or we fix whatever, you know, the problem is, you know, or what we think the problem is and it still doesn't work. And at that point, it's pretty clear that, hey, you know, there was a good chance it wasn't going to work anyways. And so therefore, at that point, usually the customer understands and don't have any problem with that. And at that point, we don't, you know, replace those phones. But if a phone came in and it was functioning properly and it just had a cracked screen, if something happened to where, you know, we cause it to not work or there's no proof as to whether or not we did, usually we'll just replace it. So, I mean, it, it really just depends on the situation. If you do put a screen on, say, one of those um, ones that come in fairly dead and eventually determine it doesn't work, do you still charge for the labor and the screen or you just say, oh, don't worry about it and you eat the cost? I'm a firm believer in not doing anything for free. Pretty much. Uh, so any phone that comes in that does not display or power on one or the other, in other words, if I can't test a phone, even if it just means a digitizer doesn't work, we will actually uh, charge a diagnostic up front, and that's $50. And, you know, that diagnostic does go towards the cost of repairs. So, for instance, for an iPhone 5, you know, we charge $97. 
Uh, if they come in with a screen that's completely busted and we can't test everything, we would charge $50 up front, and then they would pay the remaining 47 plus tax when they come pick it back up. Nine times out of 10, as soon as you replace that screen, it's going to work perfectly fine anyways. And as long as you explain that, but you know, also be very clear about the fact there's a possibility that there could be other issues and you can't verify one way or the other until you have actually replaced that screen, they understand and there's usually no issues if there is a problem with their phone. As when it comes to cell phone repair, to be honest with you, I can maybe count, um, well, I can count probably on one finger how many times I've had a customer complain about that. So I think people understand. I mean, the fact is, in order for me to determine whether or not I could fix your phone, I literally have to fix your phone. And if it doesn't work, I have to basically put your old crap screen back on there, which means it's going to take me twice as long. So, you know, if you want me to, you know, to even attempt it, I'm going to have to get paid for my time. And, uh, you know, and most people don't argue with that. They seem to understand that. Yeah, it sounds like it's all about managing expectations that, you know, uh, even if it's not going to work, there's a good chance it's still, well, you charge anyway. Um, so I guess you're covered, but, um, managing expectations seems to be the important thing that they'll probably still have to pay even if it's dead. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're upfront and honest with them, you know, usually it's not an issue. I mean, it is all about managing expectations. If you can't do that, you're going to have a lot of angry customers. So to rehash just a little bit, um, you've said that uh, systems and checklists and disclaimers are extremely important. Um, it allows you to train your guys and basically be able to duplicate yourself at the other location um, pretty easily. Uh, also that uh, the looks of the place is crazy important. As we mentioned before, that uh, it's almost an auto filter of people. You, you, you get people that want that level and people who are looking for a $25 repair are just uh, going to look at your place, and as that person said, it's like, oh, let's go. This place is going to be too expensive. Just to mention that, uh, if you do enough cell right. phone, mobile, um, a, a tablet, that sort of thing, repair, it's can be more profitable than actually computer repairs. Mac repairs, you said, is fairly is fairly worth it. I'd imagine that's largely because people they're, they're generally a bit more of a premium customer. They're they're used to paying two thousand dollars plus for their MacBook, and you say you handle. Um, Premium PCs, so people who are willing to pay the extra. Is that right for the with the PCs? Well, I mean, uh, for the Macs, um, you know, like you said, one of the main reasons why uh, it's more profitable is because people want to pay more. But uh, with the Macs, actually, most of the repairs are generally way easier than PC repairs. So, I mean, a virus move on a Mac is way easier than a virus move on a PC, for instance. Reinstall is way less consuming on a Mac than it is on a PC. Right now, I mean, we, we charge for PC repairs as premium as we can, but because it, you know, still is a major, uh, portion of our business, we're still probably, well, we're probably still more expensive than everybody else, but not as expensive as we could be. But once we do make the transition to, uh, marketing ourselves more towards mobile devices and Macs, uh, that will change. Our, our PC repairs will definitely go up as a premium. Are you guys looking at managed services at all? Um, so I've been back and forth on this idea of going business to business and doing networks and servers and managed services and, you know, everything that's involved in that. And the more and more I look at it and the more and more I see how my business is changing, the more, the more I think to myself, I'm not going to, because the fact of the matter is I don't have any network or server experience, you know, or any help desk experience, which I know most of that's pretty basic, but I don't have any desire to learn it. 
And without having that experience, it's very difficult for me to hire someone that does and know that they know what they're talking about, what they're doing, or even as, you know, uh, others on technical had pointed out to me, how am I going to price the jobs? You know, how am I going to price, you know, one project from another? So I could, but honestly, I'm probably not going to. I think I'm going to stay with the niche that we're working with, the mobile devices and Macs and doing PCs at a premium and, you know, build the uh, business on that, you know, focus point. And basically leave it at that and, uh, you know, refer out any, you know, type uh, MSP or business work out to somebody else that can do it uh, better than we can. So um, with the cell phone and all that, sort of um, keep it a really tight operation with the checklists and and also make sure you're getting paid and set yourself as set yourself up as a premium person because if you don't, you're probably not going to be earning them enough and not going to make enough money. Right. Yeah, I mean uh, – I will say one thing uh, that's a little bit different when, with premium, you know, pricing, cell phone repair, you know, especially cell phone repair is, in, in the consumer's eyes, it's a commodity. Uh, so is so is computer repair, but it's a lot easier to convince a customer that there's a difference in quality when it comes to a computer repair, simply because it you know it takes longer to do than it does for a cell phone repair. Because as far as the consumer is concerned, uh, a screen replacement is a screen replacement. You know, what's the difference whether or not I get it done here or whether or not I get it done there? So, you know, at least in my perspective, I have learned that sometimes it's not always best to be the most expensive when it comes to self-repair. Uh, instead, sometimes it's more important to get the volume. So, I mean, it really just depends on what you're doing. But um, without that volume, you're not going to see that profit either. So volume it is. Um, keep it moving and uh, make sure that you push enough people out the door. Do, do you sort of try and get sort of extra money out of those people? So do you push really hard to sell the cases to those people? Yeah. So here's one thing that really helps us uh, compared to other shops. So, uh, for instance, an iPhone 5, you know, uh, everybody knows that they, they get dented up and bent really easily as well as the 6s and 6 pluses. Uh, and so you have to break out your G tool or you have to, you know, bend, you know, uh, physically bend that frame back out so that the screen fits in there properly. And of course, uh, doesn't cause any other issues. The great thing about that is it actually gives you opportunity to make more money. And I don't know of any other shop that does this, but what we do is, uh, we price ourselves just a little bit lower than the competition when it comes to cell phone repair, at least on the iPhone fives and the sixes. And then, so we get the people coming in and once they come in, if we got bent corners, uh, you know, or dented corners, and we got to take a Dremel tool to it, or we got to take a G tool to it, uh, we immediately, you know, tell them, hey, it's going to be ninety-seven dollars for the screen replacement on this iPhone five, uh, but your housing also has to be repaired, so that's going to be an additional twenty-five dollars. Most of the time, nobody even blinks an eye. They just go ahead and pay for it, and they're done. Uh, and most of the time, they completely understand that you have to put extra time and labor into the housing, and especially when you say something to the effect of. You know, the alternative is basically replacing your housing for another hundred dollars. And obviously they'd rather spend that twenty-five rather than that hundred. So we do things like that that actually help us get more money out of the repair while still technically being cheaper than the competition. And then of course, you know, we sell cases and screen protectors and you know and accessories. We currently sell those accessories at 10% off, uh, as long as you're getting a repair done. Uh so that that definitely helps get those upsells. And, you know, that's probably our biggest upsells when it comes to cell phones. It's a great way to make a little bit of extra money. It's pull them in uh, with it being cheaper than everyone else and sort of catch them on the back end, making, you know, with the extra casings and um, yeah, the extra parts. Yeah, I mean, it, and it works well. In the last five months, you know, of all the iPhone 5s and 6s that we've done, of those that needed 
housing repair, it probably it probably comes out to about five to seven thousand dollars of extra income that we wouldn't have made if we didn't charge for that service. Yeah, I think a lot of technicians feel um, they don't want to feel like a used car salesman. They sort of don't really quite know how to sell. But um, I guess when you're selling a case right after you've repaired a smashed screen, it's just the absolute easiest sale. It's just like, well, if you don't want this sort of thing to happen again, then we got these cases which are really good. You know, they'll protect your phone that sort of stuff. It's you don't have to feel like a used car salesman. It's it's just so easy. Yeah, uh, and even with the the housing repair, for instance, you know, doing that repair, you know, you're spending additional time on that repair. You know, you're taking a 15 minute repair, and sometimes adding an additional 15, 20 minutes to that repair, just fixing the housing so you can fit that screen in there. So, you know, not only are you spending more time that you should be getting paid for, but you know, the customer gets the benefit of having a, a fixed housing that. Um, you know, that's not going to crack the screen, you know, at a two foot drop, at least it's not likely to. Uh, whereas if you didn't fix that housing and you squish that screen in there, the slightest bump's probably going to crack it. Coming up just at over an hour now. Thank you so much for um, sharing everything with us. And for everyone that's listening, I'm going to be putting um, to the website and you can see how really nice looking his stores are. It's They, they really do look great. And it does show that sort of image really is everything. So um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us. Not a problem. Thank you very much, Dean. That was Dean Ingraham of the Computer Exchange, one of the extremely knowledgeable members of the Technical Forums. If you are not a member of the Technical Forums, then you are seriously missing out. You can visit the Technible Forums at technible.com forward slash forums. Thank you so much for listening and I really hope you enjoyed the show. This is Bryce Whitty from technible.com. Discover how to build your computer business. Check out technible.com. That's T-E-C-H-N-I-B-B-L-E dot com.